Section 1 of History of Modern Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. Chapter 1. The Philosophical Renaissance, Part 1. For a thousand years after the schools of Athens were closed by Justinian, philosophy made no real advance. No essentially new ideas about the constitution of nature, the workings of mind, or the ends of life were put forward. It would be false to say that during this period no progress was made. The civilization of the Roman Empire was extended far beyond its ancient frontiers, and although much ground was lost in Asia and Africa, more than the equivalent was gained in northern Europe. Within Europe also the gradual abolition of slavery and the increasing dignity of peaceful labor gave a wider diffusion to culture, combined with a larger sense of human fellowship than any but the best minds of Greece and Rome had felt. Whether the status of women was really raised may be doubted, but the ideas and sentiments of women began to exercise an influence on social intercourse unknown before, and the arts of war and peace were in some ways almost revolutionized. This remarkable phenomenon of movement in everything except ideas has been explained by the influence of Christianity, or rather of Catholicism. There is truth in the contention, but it is not the whole truth. The Church entered into a heritage that she did not create. She defined and accentuated tendencies that long before her advent had secretly been at work. In the West, that diffusion of civilization which is her historic boast had been begun and carried far by the Rome whence her very name is taken. In the East, the title of Orthodox, by which the Greek Church is distinguished, betrays the presence of that Greek thought which molded her dogmas into logical shape. What is more, the very idea of right belief as a vital and saving thing came to Christianity from Platonism, accompanied by the persuasion that wrong belief was immoral and its promulgation a crime to be visited by the penalty of death. Ecclesiastical intolerance has been made responsible for the speculative stagnation of the Middle Ages, and it has been explained as an effect of the belief in the future punishment of heresy by eternal torments. But in truth, the persecuting spirit was responsible for the dogma, not the dogma for persecution. And we must look for the underlying cause of the whole evil in the premature union of metaphysics with religion and morality first effected by Plato or rather by the genius of Athens working through Plato. Indeed, on a closer examination we shall find that the slowing down of speculation had begun long before the advent of Christianity, and coincides with the establishment of its headquarters at Athens, where also the first permanent schools of philosophy were established. These schools were distinctly religious in their character, and none was so set against innovation as that of Epicurus, falsely supposed to have been a home of free thought. In the last Greek system of philosophy, Neoplatonism, theology reigned supreme, 
and during the two and a half centuries of its existence no real advance on the teaching of Plotinus was made. Neoplatonism, when first constituted, had incorporated a large Aristotelian element, the expulsion of which had been accomplished by its last great master Proclus, and Christendom took over metaphysics under what seemed a Platonic form, the more welcome as Plato passed for giving its creeds the independent support of pure reason. This support extended beyond a future life, and went down to the deepest mysteries of revealed faith. For, according to the Platonic doctrine of ideas, it was quite in order that there should be a divine unity existing independently of the three divine persons composing it, that the idea of humanity should be combined with one of these persons, and that the same idea, being both one and distinct from Adam, should involve all mankind in the guilt of his transgression. Thus the Church started with a strong prejudice in favor of Plato, which continued to operate for many centuries, although the first great schoolman, John Scotus Eriugena, 810-877, incurred a condemnation for heresy by adopting the pantheistic metaphysics of Neoplatonism. As the Platonic doctrine of ideas came to life again in the realism, as it was called, of scholastic philosophy, so the conflicting view of an old opponent, Aristotle, was revived under the form of conceptualism. According to this theory, the genera and species of the objective world correspond to real and permanent distinctions in the nature of things, but apart from the conceptions by which they are represented in the intellect of God and man, those distinctions have no separate existence. Aristotle's philosophy was first brought into Europe by Mohammedan conquerors of Spain, which became an important center of learning in the earlier Middle Ages. Not a few Christian scholars went there to study. Latin translations were made from Arabic versions of Aristotle, and in this way his doctrines became more widely known to the lecture rooms of the Catholic world but their derivation from infidel sources roused a prejudice against them, still further heightened by the circumstance that an Arabian commentator of Eroes had interpreted the theology of the metaphysics in a pantheistic sense. And on any sincere reading, Aristotle denied the soul's immortality, which Plato had upheld. Accordingly, all through the twelfth century, Platonism still dominated religious thought, and even so late as the early 13th century, the study of Aristotle was still condemned by the Church. Nevertheless, a great revolution was already in progress. As a result of the capture of Constantinople by the Crusaders in AD 1204, the Greek manuscripts of Aristotle's writings were brought to Paris, and at a subsequent period they were translated into Latin under the direction of St. Thomas Aquinas, the ablest of the schoolmen, who so manipulated the peripatetic philosophy as to convert it from a battering ram into a buttress of Catholic theology, a position still officially assigned to it at the present day. Aristotelianism, however, did not reign without a rival, even in the later Middle Ages. Aquinas was a Dominican, and the jealousy of the competing Franciscan order 
found expression in maintaining a certain tradition of Platonism, represented in different ways by Roger Bacon, 1214 to 1294, and by Duns Scotus, 1265 to 1308. In this connection, we have to note the extraordinary fertility of the British islands in eminent thinkers during the Middle Ages. Besides the two last mentioned, there is Eugenia, born in Ireland, John of Salisbury, 1115 to 1180, the first humanist, William of Ockham, and Wycliffe, the first reformer, making six in all. A larger contribution than any other region of Europe, or indeed all the rest of Europe put together, has made to the stars of scholasticism. This advantage is probably not due to any inherent genius for philosophy in the inhabitants of these islands, but to their relative immunity from war, and to the political liberty that cannot but have been favorable to independent thought. Five out of the six were more or less inclined to Platonism, and their idealist or mystical tendencies were sometimes associated with the same practicality that distinguished their master. The sixth, commonly called Occam, who died about 1349, is famous as the champion of nominalism, that is, of the doctrine that genera and species have no real existence, either in nature or in mind. There are only individuals, more or less resembling one another. He is the author of the famous saying, the sole legacy of scholasticism to common thought, entities ought not to be gratuitously multiplied. Entia non sunt praeter necessitatem multiplicanda. The capture of Constantinople by the Crusaders had led to Aristotle's triumph in the 13th century. Two hundred years later, the conquering Ottoman advance on the same city was the immediate cause of his overthrow. For the Byzantine scholars who fled for help and refuge to Italy brought with them the manuscripts of Plato and Plotinus, and these soon became known to Western Europe through the Latin translations of Marsilio Ficino. On its literary side, the Platonic revival fell in admirably with the humanism to which the schoolmen had long been intensely distasteful, and the religious movement that preceded Luther's Reformation found a welcome ally in Neoplatonic mysticism. At the same time, the invention of printing, by opening the world of books to non-academic readers, vastly widened the possibilities of independent thought, and the Reformation, by discrediting the scholastic theology in Northern Europe, dealt another blow at the system with which it had been associated by Aquinas. It has been supposed that the discovery of America and the circumnavigation of the globe contributed also to the impending philosophical revolution but the true theory of the earth's figure formed the very foundation of Aristotle's cosmology and was as well known to Dante as to ourselves. Made by a fervent Catholic, acting under the patronage of the Catholic queen par excellence, the discovery of Columbus increased the prestige of Catholicism by opening a new world to its missions and adding to the wealth of its supporters in the old world. The decisive blow to medieval ideas, came from another quarter, from the Copernican astronomy. 
What the true theory of the Earth's motion meant for philosophy has not always been rightly understood. It seems to be commonly supposed that the heliocentric system excited hostility because it degraded the Earth from her proud position as center of the universe. But the reverse is true. According to Aristotle and his scholastic followers, the center of the universe is the lowest and least honorable, the circumference the highest and most distinguished position in it, and that is why earth, as the vilest of the four elements, tends to the center, while fire, being the most precious, flies upward. Again, the incorruptible ether of which the heavens are composed shows its eternal character by moving forever round in a circle of which God, as prime mover, occupies the outermost verge. And this metaphysical topography is faithfully followed by Dante, who even improves on it, by placing the worst criminals, that is, the rebels and traitors, Satan with Judas and Brutus and Cassius, in the eternal ice at the very center of the earth. Such fancies were incompatible with the new astronomy. No longer cold and dead, our earth might henceforth take her place among the stars, animated like them, if animated they were, and suggested by analogy that they too supported teeming multitudes of reasonable inhabitants. But the transposition of values did not end there. Aristotle's whole philosophy had been based on a radical antithesis between the sublunary and the superlunary spheres, the world of growth, decay, vicissitude, and the world of everlasting realities. In the sublunary sphere also it distinguished sharply between the forms of things, which were eternal, and the matter on which they were imposed, an intangible, evanescent thing, related to form as possibility to actuality. We know that these two convenient categories are logically independent of the false cosmology that may or may not have suggested their worldwide application, but the immediate effect of having it denied, or even doubted, was greatly to exalt the credit of matter, or power, at the expense of form, or act. The first to draw these revolutionary inferences from the Copernican theory was Giordano Bruno, 1548-1600. Born at Nola, a South Italian city not far from Naples, Bruno entered the Dominican order before the age of 15, and on that occasion exchanged his baptismal name of Filippo for that by which he has ever since been known. Here he became acquainted with the whole of ancient and medieval philosophy, besides the Copernican astronomy, then not yet condemned by the Church. At the early age of eighteen he first came into collision with the authorities, and at twenty-eight, in 1576, he openly questioned the chief characteristic dogmas of Catholicism, was menaced with an action for heresy, and fled from the convent. The pursuit must have been rather perfunctory, for Bruno found himself free to spend two years wandering from one Italian city to another, earning a precarious livelihood by tuition and authorship. Leaving Italy at last, rather from a desire to push his fortunes abroad than from any fear of molestation, and finding France too hot to hold him, he tried Geneva for a little while. 
but on being given to understand that he could only stay on the condition of embracing Calvinism, returned to France, where he lived first for two years as professor of philosophy at Toulouse, and three more in a somewhat less official position at Paris. Thence in the train of the French ambassador he passed to England, where his two years' sojourn seems to have been the happiest and most fruitful period of his restless career. It was cut short by his chief's return to Paris. But the philosopher's fearless advocacy of Copernicanism made that bigoted capital impossible. The truth, however, seems to be that Bruno never could hit it off with anyone or any society, and the next five years spent in trying to make himself acceptable at one German university after another are a record of hopeless failure. Finally, in an evil hour, he goes to Venice at the invitation of a young noble, Mocenigo, who in revenge for disappointed expectations betrays him to the Inquisition. Questioned about his heresies, Bruno showed perfect willingness to accept all the theological dogmas that he had formally denied. Whether he withdrew his retractation on being transferred from a Venetian to a Roman prison does not appear, as the Roman depositions are not forthcoming. Neither is it clear why so long a delay as six years, from 1594 to 1600, was granted to the philosopher when such short work was made of other heretics. It seems most probable that Bruno, while pliant enough on questions of religious belief, remained inflexible in maintaining the infinity of inhabited worlds. When the final condemnation was read out, he told the judges that he heard it with less fear than they felt in pronouncing it. In the customary euphemistic terms, they had sent him to death by fire. At the stake, when the crucifix was held up to him, he turned away his eyes. With what thoughts we cannot tell. There is a monument to the heroic thinker at Nola, and another in the Campo dei Fiori, on the spot where he suffered at Rome, raised against the strongest protests of the ecclesiastical authorities. The Greek-Italian philosophers, the Pythagoreans and Parmenides, had introduced the idea of finiteness, or limitation, as a necessary condition of reality and perfection into thought. From them, it passed over to Plato and Aristotle, who made it dominant in the schools. Epicurus and Lucretius had indeed carried on the older Ionian tradition of infinite atoms and infinite worlds dispersed through infinite space, but their philosophy was practically atheistic, and the Church condemned it as both heretical and false. Probably the discovery of the Earth's globular shape had first suggested the idea of a finite universe to Parmenides. At any rate, the discovery of the Earth's motion suggested the idea of an infinite universe to his Greek-souled Italian successor, or rather it was the breakup of Aristotle's spherical world by Copernicanism that threw Bruno back, as he gives us himself to understand, on the older Ionian cosmologies with their assumption of infinite space and infinite worlds. In this reference, Bruno went far beyond Copernicus and even Kepler, for both had assumed, in deference to current opinion, 
that the fixed stars were equidistant from the solar system and formed a single sphere enclosing it on all sides. He, on the contrary, anticipated modern astronomy in conceiving the stars as so many suns dispersed without assignable limits through space and each surrounded by inhabited planets. Infinite space had been closely associated by Democritus and Epicurus with infinite atoms. And the next great step taken by Bruno was to rehabilitate atomism as a necessary concept of modern science. He figured the atoms as very minute spheres of solid earthy matter, forming by their combinations the framework of visible bodies. But their combinations are by no means fortuitous, as Democritus had impiously supposed, nor do they move through an absolute void. All space is filled with an ocean of liquid ether, which is nothing other than the quintessence of which Aristotle's celestial spheres were composed. Only in Bruno's system, it takes the place of that first matter, which is the extreme antithesis of the disembodied form, personified in the prime mover, God. And here we come to that reversal of cosmic values brought about by the reversal of the relations between earth and sun which Copernicus had effected. The primordial matter, so far from passively receiving the forms imposed on it from without, has an infinite capacity for evolving forms from its own bosom, and so far from being unspiritual, is itself the universal spirit, the creative and animating soul of the world. The first matter, form, energy, life, and reason, are identified with nature, nature with the universe, and the universe with God. So far all is clear, if not convincing. It is otherwise with the theory of monads. This is only expounded in Bruno's Latin works, for the most part ill-written and hopelessly obscure. It seems possible that by the monads, Bruno sometimes means the infinitesimal parts into which the ether of space may conceivably be divided. Each of these possesses consciousness, and therefore may be considered as reflecting and representing the whole universe. A number of monads, or rather a continuous portion of the ether surrounding and interpenetrating a group of atoms, endows them with the forms and qualities of elementary bodies, ascending gradually through vegetal and animal organizations to human beings. But the animating process does not stop with man. The earth, with the other planets, the sun, and all the stars are also monads on the largest scale with reasonable souls, just as Aristotle thought. In fact, the old mythology whence he derived the idea repeats itself in his great enemy Bruno. Beyond and above all these partial unities is the monus monandum, the supreme unity, the infinite God, who is the soul of the infinite universe. Doubtless there is here a reminiscence of the Neoplatonic one, the ineffable absolute beyond all existence, yet endowed with the infinite power whence all existence proceeds. Bruno had learned from Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, a Copernican before Copernicus, to recognize the principle of Heraclitus, that opposites are one, and in this instance he applies it with brilliant audacity, for every infinitesimal part of the space-filling ether 
is no less the soul of the universe than the monad of monads itself. And both agree in being non-existent in the sense of being transfinite, since there can be no sum of infinity and no animated mathematical points. From Anaximander to Plotinus, there is hardly a great Greek thinker whose influence cannot be traced in the system of Giordano Bruno. And while he represents the philosophical renaissance in this eminent degree, he heads the two lines of speculation which, separately or combined, run through the whole history of modern metaphysics, the monistic and what is now called the pluralistic tendency. With none, except perhaps with Hegel, have the two been perfectly balanced, and in Bruno himself the leaning is distinctly towards plurality, his supreme monad being a mere survival from the Neoplatonic one. End of section one.